Hello everyone and welcome to the first of what I hope will be a series of monthly podcasts taking a look at some of the things happening within the weird and wonderful world of family history. Probably the first thing that I should do is to introduce myself. Well my name is Chris Payton and I've been working now as a professional genealogist for the last nine years having previously worked as a a documentary maker within the television industry in both England and Scotland mainly for the BBC, but also for Scottish television. Just to explain my accent, although I now live on the west coast of Scotland, I in fact originally come from a wee island about 12 miles off the coast of Scotland. It's called Ireland. In fact, I was raised in a town in Northern Ireland called Carrickfergus, which some of you may have heard of from the song with that title. Well, the activities that I undertake as a genealogist are extremely varied. They they range on the one hand from carrying out client-based ancestral research, mainly within Scotland, but also in Ireland, to the other where I regularly write for several family history magazines, such as Your Family Tree or Family Tree, as well as a a range of books for publishers, such as Unlock the Past in Australia and Pen and Sword uh, here in Britain. But in amongst all of that, I also tutor on family history courses for a company called Faros Teaching and Tutoring Limited. Uh, A wee bit more on that later on in the podcast. And I regularly give family history-based talks, both here in Scotland, but also at venues across the world. I've spoken in Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, In fact, next month, I'm going to be returning to Portugal to speak at the second Genealogy in the Sunshine Conference, which is being organised by... Peter Calver from the Lost Cousins website. So I'm looking forward to returning to that. That should be good fun. In 2007, I first started to write a news blog called Scottish Genealogy News and Events, or Scottish Genes for short, which today is now known as British Genealogy News and Events. I've I've widened the geographic area that it covers. But when I first began to write that, I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do with it. I figured I might as well just jump in where angels fear to tread see how it turns out. Well, that's really the approach I'm going to try with this podcast. Each month, I'll bring an update of some of the most recent developments within the genealogy world from the perspective of someone with a predominant interest in Scottish and Irish research, but I'll obviously tap into developments from further afield in England, elsewhere in the British Isles and overseas. I might also try and grab an interview from time to time with folk working within the family history scene. It's one of these things, I'll work it out as I go along as to how this thing will evolve. But I'll also provide some advice on records that might be of use for family history research. Maybe on records that you might never have heard of, or from family history cases I've worked on myself. At the moment, there's no frills with the podcast, there's no funny theme tune or sound effects. That's all stuff I can work on for future editions. For now, though, let's just crack on with some genealogy. So let's start by having a wee look at some of the the news developments over the last month. Before I do, you'll find considerably more on these stories, and and many more, including links to the original news sources, on the British Genes blog, which you'll find online at britishgenes.blogspot.co.uk. So, first off... There's a couple of science-based stories that have just blown me away over the last month when I first read them. Now, we all know that when carrying out genealogy research, the aim is to locate the parents of a person, and then their parents, and then their parents, and so on and so on, to help build up a family tree. Well, at the moment, that involves looking for 
two parents, the, the mother and the father in each case. But there's been a massive change that's just taken place within the UK at the moment because it now looks like, in, in some cases, we may well be looking for three parents. There's a new modified IVF technique that's been developed at a university in Newcastle in the, the north of England, whereby scientists can now replace faulty mitochondrial DNA within a woman's egg before conception, which would mean that the baby produced would in fact have DNA sourced from three individuals rather than two from the father, the, the mother, and also from the donor, the, the female who is the donor for the mitochondrial DNA. Now, the reasons for doing this are to prevent the passing on of certain medical conditions derived from faulty mitochondrial DNA. From a family history point of view, I actually find this quite interesting because at the moment, there's in fact three possible DNA tests that are available for genealogy purposes, and one of those allows you to test your mitochondrial DNA. Now that it's possible to replace that type of DNA, in future generations this means that there will actually be a change to the, the DNA that can be tested within their body. So it's a fascinating development. The, the technique has now been approved by the United Kingdom's Parliament at Westminster. It's gone through both the House of Commons and the House of Lords. So this is the first country in the world that's now made this legal to do so. There, there are basically a few more things that now need to be done in terms of how the, the legislation is going to be enacted. But it's on the cards and it is something to keep an eye on for the future. It's going to be quite a change, certainly within the IVF world, but down the line it will have some impact, I'm sure, to somebody doing their family history research. But if you think that's a mind-blowing DNA story, there's another development that's just been announced which is equally as extraordinary. And that's the use of DNA to store digital information for up to a million years. Scientists in Zurich in Switzerland have discovered how to convert proteins within DNA to store digital information. And once it's been trapped within the DNA, they've then encased it in glass. And this format is apparently so sturdy that it's almost invincible. So if, like me, you have dozens of data CDs or extra hard drives and thumb drives and all sorts, just console yourself that in a thousand years, our descendants may actually be walking hard drives. It's possibly not quite as simple as that, but it's certainly impressive and it sounds like it might be quite a, a game changer. Okay, let's leave the science for now and let's head somewhere a bit more local. Here in Scotland, the biggest news of the past month has probably been the announcement by the National Records of Scotland, our national archive essentially that's based in Edinburgh, about its future property portfolio strategy, something it's obliged to do uh, by government on a regular basis. The National Records at present has a series of buildings located across the capital, but the two key buildings where the public can gain access to records for research are General Register House and New Register House. Both of them are, are located beside each other on Princess Street in the city centre. Well, the NRS has announced that a, a storage facility that it also has, it's called West Register House, is to close and the materials that are held there will be transferred to yet another facility called Thomas Thompson House, which is quite a bit out from the city centre. To offset that, what they're going to do is they're going to make available a search room facility at Thomas Thompson House. So they're going to close one facility, but increase the search capability at the other to try and compensate. But here's what's really upset some folk. Within the announcement, the, the NRS has stated the following, and I'll quote exactly what they stated. They say... Our long-term aspiration is to co-locate the majority of our staff in a fit-for-purpose facility in Edinburgh. 
and to expand and improve our archive and public facilities at Thomas Thompson House in the west of the city. Although there are no immediate plans for NRS to move out of General Register House or New Register House, these buildings do not feature in our core estate over the long term. So, in short, what the NRS is saying is that when circumstances allow, it wants to establish a new all-in-one purpose-built archive at some future stage. But it would be fair to say that this has gone down locally like a lead balloon amongst many family historians and interested groups. The two buildings were originally designed in the 19th century as purpose-built facilities to house both the National Archive and our General Register Office. And as pieces of architecture, they are truly stunning structures. They really are wonderful buildings. They're well worth a visit if you um, do come to Edinburgh. But I have to say, I think it's perhaps time that we did think about a new purpose-built facility. Because when I go to do research at the NRS, it's not the architecture that I go to see, it's the documents that it holds. And on that front, increasingly more material is being stored off-site because the facility does not have the storage space to hold all of its uh, contents. The Public Record Office in Northern Ireland, which is the, the equivalent of the NRS over in Northern Ireland, moved to a new purpose-built facility a couple of years ago. And the difference there between the old resource and the new one is quite simply the difference between night and day. Similarly, in England, the, the modern National Archives facility based at Kew is a massive structure that provides an equally impressive service. Both are, are modern, vibrant facilities that have up-to-date technology and they're, they're completely fit for purpose. Now, undoubtedly, an advantage with the current setup in Edinburgh is that both General Register House and New Register House are located centrally. But is it really enough that a building is easy to get to and it looks nice and it feels historic when the very records you actually want to see are becoming increasingly more difficult to access by the day? Well, that's the, the question that I would put. Um, I did ask the NRS, I contacted them to ask about a timescale for all of this, and they've kindly responded to say that the first phase of their plans for Thomas Thompson House could take up to five or six years to implement, and that any possibility of a new purpose-built facility, if it even happens, and it has to be said that nothing has actually been agreed yet, but if it does happen, that could be at least a decade away. So if it does happen, I think that could be quite a good development. But at the same time, if it doesn't happen, then there are obviously a lot of questions that need to be raised about the future provision for the National Records of Scotland and how they will make their contents much more accessible. So that's obviously something to keep an eye on over the next few years. Well, I mentioned Northern Ireland there, and another major development that I'm delighted to see uh, has just happened is the online provision of Historic Ordnance Survey Maps for the North of Ireland via the Environment Agency website, which you'll find online. I'll just read out the address. It's at maps.ehsni.gov.uk slash mapviewer. Um, again, you'll find the story on the British Genes blog with that link. But not too long ago, these maps were actually available online. They were available on the old Ordnance Survey website for the province, but they disappeared when the platform was recently updated. But on the Environment Agency website now, you will find the historic six-inch series of Ordnance Survey maps for the North under the Historic Maps link, with a range of maps dating from 1829 right up to 1945. And the site is completely free to access. If, like me, 
you lost several years of your life before through the stress of using the old version of this database, I think you'll be in for a much happier time now. It is conclusive proof, I would say, that God is indeed an Ulsterman. One thing I would point out is that a couple of people have been in touch with me to say that they have had a few problems trying to access the site. Now, I've not had any problems with the site at all. I tend to use the Google Chrome browser, so it is possible it might be a browser issue if that is the case. So I would suggest maybe trying uh, to access the site through Google Chrome. It is worth the, the effort. It's a great site and what they've done with it. Now, there's also been a huge development for those hoping to see online access to the civil birth, marriage and death registers for England and Wales, something that has been long available for the Scottish equivalents and also fairly recently for the Northern Irish uh, version of those records. At present, there is a horrible inequality in the UK where those seeking historical records in Scotland can do so by accessing digital copies online at about £1.40 at a time through the Scotland's People website. Or they can also visit a genealogy centre in a place like Kilmarnock or Glasgow or Edinburgh and gain unlimited access to all the records that have been digitised right up to the present day for a fee of £15. Northern Irish records can now be sought online via the, the General Register Office of Northern Ireland's platform. It's called Genie. It does a similar thing where you can access the records at £2 at a time. And you can also visit the, the General Register Office building in Belfast where they provide a, a search room. And again, you can access records to the present day. But in England and Wales, the only way you can access birth, marriage and death records at the moment is through the General Register Office at Southport and also through local superintendent uh, registrar's offices. If you go through the, the GRO building, you have to pay £9.25 at a time for a certificate, which is extraordinary. If you go through a local superintendent registrar's office, it's even more expensive at £10 each. Well, this has been a long-standing inequality, and, and the UK government at Westminster has at long last accepted an amendment to its deregulation bill which will allow for the publication of information from the English and Welsh registers. Whilst this announcement does not in itself create an England and Wales people type service, it does remove the barrier to such a provision being made. So let's hope it isn't too long before the GRO at Southport pulls its finger out and starts making the material much more affordable to access for genealogical purposes. Because until it does, English and Welsh genealogists will essentially continue to be treated as second-class citizens compared to those of us based in Scotland and Northern Ireland when it comes to accessing the most basic records of genealogy, which are birth, marriage and death records. Well, those are some of the bigger genealogy stories from the last month in the UK, but as I say, you'll find more on my blog at britishgenes.blogspot.co.uk. I want to turn now to give a quick plug for a great resource for Scottish research. If you've had a look at your birth, marriage and death records and the censuses uh, within your research and you want to know what to do next or what to look at next, I always recommend one site above all others as an absolute essential for Scottish research. And that's a thing called the Statistical Accounts of Scotland. So what are the Statistical Accounts of Scotland? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Well, the Statistical Accounts of Scotland, which are available on a website from the University of Edinburgh, uh, which is edina, E-D-I-N-A, dot A-C, dot U-K, slash, stat, S-T-A-T, hyphen, A-C-C, 
hyphen SCOT. So it's adina.ac.uk forward slash stat hyphen ac hyphen Scott. These are detailed contemporary descriptions of every Scottish parish as written by church ministers initially within the 1790s through the first statistical account and then again in the 1830s and the 1840s within the, the new statistical account or the second statistical account. They're exceptionally useful in identifying the local industries and the history of a parish, but also the names of landowners, the religious denominations that are present, because it wasn't just the Church of Scotland, which are the records you'll find on Scotland's people. There's also the character of the people that are described and, and much, much more. In particular, when you compare two accounts for a parish between the first account and the second account, you can often get a sense of the dramatic changes affecting their development as a result of the industrial and the agricultural revolutions. Just to give an example, my own family, the Peyton family, actually migrated from a parish called Dunbarney into Perth in the, the late 1790s. And the first statistical account describes how, at that point, Perth was a booming city for the weaving industry. And my family were weavers, so they all migrated into the city to try and take up work. But when you look at the second account, from the 1830s, it describes how all the weavers of the borough are essentially out of work. There's been a massive boom and a massive bust that has followed in the industry, and what was a massively lucrative job in the early part of the 19th century, those who were following the, the careers of a weaver by the 1830s were essentially unemployed, they were poor, starving, hungry, and you get a real sense of the dramatic shift in fortunes for that community by reading the two accounts one after the other. But in addition to being a useful contextual tool for the research that you've already done through your birth, marriage and death records, you'll also occasionally find some really fairly hilarious references to events uh, within the, the, the accounts as well. At times when I get up to the high dough with work, my, my wife will just look at me and say, are you all right? And I respond, oh hi, I'm just away with the fairies. Well, it would seem from the first statistical account for the Dumfrieshire Parish of Kirk Michael, as recorded by the minister, the, the Reverend jo Dr John Burgess, that I'm not the only one. Here's what he recorded in the 1790s about an incident that's said to have happened half a century before in the 1740s. It says, About 50 years ago, a clergyman in the neighbourhood, whose faith was more regulated by the scepticism of philosophy than the credulity of superstition, could not be prevailed upon to yield his assent to the opinion of the times. At length, however, he felt from experience that he doubted what he ought to have believed. One night, as he was returning home at a late hour from a presbytery, he was seized by the fairies and carried aloft into the air. Through fields of ether and fleecy clouds, he journeyed many a mile, descrying the earth far distant below him, and no bigger than a nutshell. Being thus sufficiently convinced of the reality of their existence, they let him down at the door of his own house, where he afterwards often recited to the wandering circle the marvellous tale of his adventure. So next time you feel like you're about to go away with the fairies with your research, be assured that the Church of Scotland has already confirmed their existence on your behalf. Well, that's just about it for this first podcast, so I'm just about ready to love you and leave you for now. But before I go, I want to flag up that I'll be teaching a Scottish Research Online course for five weeks from March the 4th via Faros Teaching and Tutoring Limited. 
The course takes a look at some of the basic family history websites online, some of which you'll be familiar with, Attic Scotland's People for example, but some you may not have come across before, and I'll tell you how to get the very best from them with your research. There'll be some things within some websites, even things like Scotland's People, that you may not have even known were there. So it's to try and basically help you really come to grips with the, all the potential these sites offer. And also to teach you some of the basics along the way about how to find certain records. But for full details, you can visit the Pharos website at www.pharostutors.com and that's Pharos, P-H-A-R-O-S, as in the lighthouse, pharostutors.com where you'll find details on both that course but also other courses taught by several colleagues of mine on a variety of British-based subjects. And also, just before I go, just to mention that I've also got two new publications out from Unlock the Past in Australia. The first is a revised second edition of a book that I previously produced for the company called Irish Family History Resources Online. And it does what it says in the tin, really. It looks at all the great resources that are available online in an area that has transformed over the last few years. Irish genealogy, I'm sure many of you out there will know this, used to be an absolute nightmare if you were trying to do it online and you weren't in Ireland. The other book that I produced is a guidebook entitled Down and Out in Scotland Research and Ancestral Crisis. Now I've had a lot of fun with this one, the, the premise for it being that there's really a truism with Scottish research in that some of the most detailed records for our ancestors are usually those recorded when things have gone absolutely wrong for them. Whether that's a rebellion or an eviction, a bankruptcy, abandonment, poverty, all sorts of scenarios. Well, both books are available for sale at the moment in Australia and in Canada. There's also an ebook format available internationally, and I'm hoping that there'll be a British publisher producing an edition more locally soon, which I'll confirm in due course. Details on how to get a hold of both of those books are available on the British Genes blog, where you'll see a, a books category at the top of the page, and there's info on these books and various other publications that are produced in the past. Well, that's it for now. I hope you find what I've just uh, discussed useful. I'll come back in a, a month's time and we'll kick off again with a, another podcast. But in the meantime, good luck with your research and I'll speak to you again soon.